You know, there are many famous deaths in world history. <clears throat> we can talk about John F. Kennedy and his assassination. Um, we could talk about uh, Cleopatra and her poisoning. We could talk about others. But there's one death, one execution that above and beyond all others throughout history continues to have universal reverberations. And I'm talking, of course, about the crucifixion of Jesus. Uh, there were many thousands of crucifixions in Jesus' day. Crucifixion was not uncommon. But the crucifixion of Jesus was different from all of the other crucifixions that happened at that time. It alone was a divinely inspired prophetic act. And it alone has the power to transform the eternal destiny of human, any human who will look upon it with humility, with faith. And that was true then. It's true now. It's eternally so. And so today, I want to draw your attention to one incident that took place during Jesus' crucifixion and his trial before Pilate. It has profound implications for every one of us. My hope is that as we walk our way through this uh, this morning, that you'll hear what I'm trying to say from the text, that you'll reflect on it, that you'll listen to what the Spirit of God is saying to you, because He is speaking to you from this passage Despite the flaws of today's messenger, he is speaking to you. And my hope is that you'll hear what he has to say this morning. This incident that we're going to look at this morning is one every one of us needs to understand, and that's this. Jesus took our place on the cross. Did you hear what I said? Say it with me. Jesus took our place on the cross. He was punished by God the Father so that God the Father could justly set you and me free one day when we stand before him in judgment. The Father poured out his anger on Jesus so that he could pour out something else on you. And if we do not get this truth, we miss the fundamental point of the cross. He was taking our place, quite literally. He was a substitute, a stand-in, a double for you and me on the cross. This is huge. And if you have your Bible with you this morning, I want you to see it this morning. We're going to look at it in Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27. Because every one of us needs to understand this. Not just the theology of it. You need to understand the practical, prophetic nature of it. Its implications. Matthew 27. The scene is that there's a large crowd, a mob really. It's gathered early one morning at the Roman governor's palace in Jerusalem. It's Pilate. He's the head of state for all of Rome in Jerusalem. And Romans, or, uh, excuse me, Matthew 27, verse 11, the, the Bible tells us this. It describes how Jesus was standing before Pilate this morning, the Roman governor. And he asked this question, are you the king of the Jews? The governor asked him. And Jesus replied, you said it. When the leading priests and the elders made their accusations against him, against Jesus, Jesus remained silent, the Bible says. Don't you hear all these accusations? Don't you hear these charges they're bringing against you, Pilate demanded. 
But Jesus made no response to any of the charges, much to the governor's surprise. Now, it was the governor's custom each year during the Passover to celebrate, uh, uh, during the Passover celebration, to release one prisoner to the crowd, anyone they wanted. And this year, there was a notorious prisoner, a man named Barabbas. As the crowds gathered before Pilate's house that morning, he asked them, which one do you want me to release to you? Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Messiah? The Bible even explains that he knew very well that the religious leaders had arrested Jesus out of envy. Just then, as Pilate was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent him this message, Leave that innocent man alone. I suffered through a terrible nightmare about him last night. Meanwhile, the leading priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas to be released and for Jesus to be put to death. So the governor asked again, which of these two do you want me to release to you? The crowd shouted back, Barabbas. Pilate responded, then what should I do with Jesus who is called the Messiah? And they shouted back, crucify him. Why, Pilate demanded, what crime has he committed? The mob roared even louder, crucify him. Pilate saw that he wasn't getting anywhere and that a riot was developing, and so he sent for a bowl of water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. The responsibility is yours. And all the people yelled back, We will take responsibility for his death, we and our children. So Pilate released Barabbas to them, and he ordered Jesus flogged with a lead-tipped whip, and then turn him over to the Roman soldiers to be crucified. In the divine drama of Jesus' trial before the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, there are at least three brief but vivid scenes that hold significance for you and me. And for the next few minutes, I'm going to highlight these scenes as though they were a script for a movie, because in a sense they have been and are. But it's a divine movie, and it's important that we understand these three scenes because when we get them in our heads, it'll make us easier for us to understand the extent to which God loves us, the extent to which He's chosen us long before we chose Him. So for the next few minutes as I highlight these scenes, uh, just listen and think about the great love and grace of our God. The first scene that I want to highlight for you, I've entitled The Accused. If you're writing a movie script, you know, in this, this is, you got the accused. And there were two notorious prisoners who on this day stood accused before Pilate and the people. The first, of course, was Barabbas. And the second, of course, was Jesus. He was, in fact, being held prisoner. One was a famous criminal, an insurrectionist, a revolutionary, a thug, a murderer. The other was God, who had robed himself in flesh, was the essence of innocence, the word that spoke all that is into existence, who said, let there be light, and there was, and he declared that it was good. 
we're given a clue in this particular passage into what's really going on when we hear the names of the accused. You know what Barabbas means? What his name means in the original Greek language? Bar means son. Abbas, do you, do you, do you know, have you ever heard the, the term Abba? What does it mean? Father. Barabbas, son of the father. That's what his name meant. Jesus, or Yeshua, means God saves, is what his name means. Now, I want you to think about this. The son of the father was guilty, condemned, worthy of execution. He was just like all of the sons and daughters of the father on this little planet, guilty, condemned, without hope, awaiting the execution of a sentence against him. And he was completely unaware that the innocent, righteous one of God was in his presence preparing to take his place of punishment. The accused. Two. It's the first scene. The son of the father and the only begotten son of the father standing on the judgment stake right before, right before the judge, which brings us to the second scene in this divine drama. I call it the judge. The judge. One of the great ironies of this moment in Jerusalem is that there are two judges, not one, in the scene. I mean, Pilate was the unrivaled Roman head of state in Jerusalem. He alone held the power of life and death in his hands. What does he do when he's faced with an angry mob that was clamoring for the death of an innocent man? What does he do? Matthew 27, verse 24 tells us, it says that when Pilate saw that he wasn't getting anywhere and that a riot was developing, he sent for a bowl of water and he washed his hands before the crowd saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. The responsibility is yours. This is what he's doing. Pilate washed his hands of it all. Think about this. Less than 12 hours earlier, Jesus, the King of the Jews, the Messiah for all of mankind, took an entirely different approach. John 13, 3 tells us that Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything, he had come from God and was returning to God, and so he got up from the table. He took off his robe. He wrapped a towel around his waist and poured water into a basin. And then he began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that he had wrapped around his waist. I want the gravity of this to sink in. This judge did not wash his hands of responsibility. This judge got his hands dirty, washing the feet, cleansing the lives, changing the destinies. 
of every son and daughter of the father who was guilty. It's an amazing, amazing contrast. Which king do you want to follow? Which brings us to the third scene in this divine drama. I call it the verdict. Matthew 27, verse 25 says that Pilate released Barabbas to them and he ordered Jesus flogged with a lead-tipped whip and then turned him over to the Roman soldiers to be crucified. The verdict was clearly this. The guilty son of the father was released and set free while the innocent, only begotten son of the father, Jesus, was condemned and crucified in his place. The righteous judge, Jesus, became the substitute quite literally in a prophetic act for the sins of not just this man, but every son and daughter of the Father who ever has or ever will live. It was a divinely inspired prophetic act. It still has the power to transform the eternal destiny of any man, any woman who with the humility and faith will receive what, what Jesus has done for them. Did Barabbas deserve it? Barabbas did not deserve it, did he? Any more than you and I deserve it. Did Jesus deserve what he endured? No. But he chose it. He chose it because of his great love for you and for me. Now that you know what Jesus was doing for you, I, I hope you see this. It was, it was like the Bible is full of instances where God does things in the physical to try to help us to understand a spiritual reality. And in this particular instance, it's a physical act where quite literally a son of the Father is set free. A guilty son of the Father is set free. And the only begotten son of the Father is beaten and executed. It was done so that we could grasp in the physical what's going on in the heavenly realms that we can't see. Now that you understand what Jesus was doing for you and for me, will you, you once and for all time receive his love for you? Will you, will you stop thinking that somehow you can earn it? Barabbas could not have earned it any more than you can earn his love. Will you humble yourself before our God who has humbled himself on a level before us that we, that we scarcely grasp, rarely think very deeply about. We invite Jesus to be your Savior, to be your Lord. Will you confess your allegiance to him before the people in your life instead of being timid or, or shy or ashamed of the fact that he's your Savior. 
will you proclaim to those around you with boldness, with gratitude, that he gave his life for you. The least you can do is confess him before man. You confessed it. You do it. Will you demonstrate your submission to him through baptism? He demonstrated his submission to the Father through clothing himself in flesh, through entering this world in poverty, through suffering unbelievable hardships and excruciating death the hands of a lead-tipped whip and a Roman cross that was cruel beyond our understanding. Will you give yourself in baptism as the Bible teaches? Where you identify with his death as you go under the water and as you come up out of it, you're identifying with his resurrection. Will you do that? as he himself has asked us to do. Will you give yourself to Jesus just as Jesus gave himself for us? It's my belief that one of the great challenges of uh, our day is trying to make Holy Week and the days leading up to Easter holy. It's impossible to make it holy if we don't stop and think about those things which are holy. There is nothing more holy than when the righteous, sinless Son, the only begotten Son of the Father, gives His, his own life as a substitute for you and me. My challenge to you is this week and next week, spend these next days every day thinking about this for a little bit. I don't have to spend the whole day. But how would your life and mine change if perhaps we took a few verses of the text like this one and we read it every day for the next several days until that day when we celebrate together the resurrection from the dead of the one who gave his life for us. Give yourself to Jesus. Body, soul, spirit, emotions. He gave himself fully for you. I want to close uh, my message this morning with this thought. I've got a few of you who are firemen among us, <clears throat> our retired firemen. How do we measure the size of a fire? by the number of firefighters and fire engines sent to fight against the fire, correct? How do we measure the seriousness of someone's medical condition? Do we not measure it by the amount of risk that doctors are willing to take in the prescription of antibiotics or surgical procedures to treat the condition that's before them, right? And when we get to things like code blue and these kind of things, it has reached such a critical nature that we're, you know, that every effort is now being expended. How do we measure the gravity of sin and the incomparable vastness of God's love for us? 
You measure it in much the same way. You look at the magnitude of what God had to do through Jesus, the Son of God, in order to intervene in our hopeless estate. He became a common criminal for you, for me, in our place. That's what the Bible means when it says in Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's what that verse means. We were still sinners, just like Barabbas. But he loved us so much he died. Think about that this morning. Hope you will this week and the next week. God loves you more than you and I grasp. I'm going to ask you if you would stand with me. We're going to pray together. And maybe this morning some of you need to just give your heart and life to Jesus. You've never done that. You just need to look heavenward and just say, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. I am not deserving of one so great as you. I want to remind you, you are a son or a daughter of the Father. A cherished son or daughter of the Father. Don't ever forget that. Uh, a person is as valuable as what somebody's willing to pay. And look what God paid. You have incalculable worth to God the Father. Thank him for that. Let's bow our heads. You'd like someone to pray with you specifically. I want to do that afterwards, but let's pray and then we'll be dismissed. So grateful that you're here today. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have loved us with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That you gave up your body to extreme suffering that we might be purchased and redeemed from the consequences of our many sins. Thank you that you did this for us while we were still sinners. You did this knowing, in our case, we hadn't even been born yet. You knew we would be born. You knew the day would come when we would choose sin over you. And you sovereignly chose us over life. We cherish and thank you for that. We ask, Father, that you would help us now with all the rest of the days of our lives to choose you over our own lives, over our own preferences, our own wishes. We recognize that that is what your, your decision calls for, is that kind of choice. Father, we choose it. Though none go with us, we will follow you. We will make you Lord and King of our bodies, of our lives, of our destinies. We want you to be exalted as Lord and King of this universe. Thank you that you have been exalted to the highest place, Lord Jesus, that you've been given a name that's above every name. 
We thank you that the day is coming when you will demonstrate to all of mankind throughout history the, the fact that you are the unrivaled, unequaled King of kings and Lord of lords, and that you have loved us more than you loved your own life. We look forward to your return, Lord Jesus, when that becomes patently clear. But in this moment, we bend our knees, we bow our hearts to you of our own free will, grateful for your grace, thankful for your love. Would you fill every person within the sound of my voice, Lord Jesus, with your spirit, with your love. Help them to know that they were they were the object of your affection and will be for all eternity. Thank you, Lord Jesus. And now, Lord, if there are things that we need to, other things we need to pray about or talk amongst ourselves as we wrap up today, just prompt us about those things and give us a humility of spirit to follow through on that. We thank you, thank you, thank you that you died in our place. Go with us now. This is our prayer. We lift it together in Jesus' name. And everybody agreed with me and said, amen. Amen. Bless you all.